glad to have you tonight. How's everybody doing? All righty. We are studying the book of Romans this quarter. We're going to try to get as much of it as we can. It is a, a big book for a quarter, but we'll do the very best we can, and what we don't get, we'll circle back at some point and then finish up. By way of introduction, let's talk about some things related to the book by way of introduction, and then we'll uh, talk about some things that I think are pertinent to our understanding of the book, and we'll get into that. It is the longest of Paul's epistles, someone has noted, and it's, they say, the most reasoned and the most theological, and if you listen to commentators talk about the book of Romans, some hailed it as the greatest book in human history, the greatest book in the Bible. I don't suppose I disagree with its greatness. It's just hard to pick of the 66. They're all pretty great. But for the things that contains in it, I can see why people gush over it so much. It has so much depth and rich and goodness in it. It explains so much. It makes clear so much relating to God and his plan of justification, the mystery and the Christ and all that God has done on our behalf. The author of the book, we would say, the Holy Spirit, of course, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. So generally we follow that with the human author, and that would be the Apostle Paul. The inspired penman is Paul the Apostle. We see that in chapter 1 and verse number 1. The date of the book is around 57 A.D., the audience, he spells out in verse number 7 of chapter 1, he says it, to all, who, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose of the book, let's begin at verse number 9. I will read down to verse number 12. I think within these verses we'll find the purpose that Paul intends he says, for God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you each of us by each other's faith, both yours and mine." Paul wants to come to the brethren in Rome. He wants to establish them with gifts and strengthen their faith and be encouraged by them. The theme of the book, what we're going to read in this book is the subject of justification, how a person is made right with God, how God declares a person as he ought to be. And that is the purpose and the theme of the book. We're going to read about justification. Now, as we get to the latter portions of the book, justification leads to sanctification. We might say salvation and sanctification. It leads to that, but that'll be from about chapter 12 on. These first 11 chapters really emphasize how a person is made right with God. Job actually asks that question in his book, thousands of years ago, Job chapter 9, verse 1 and verse number 2, then Job answered and said, I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? How is a man going to be just in the sight of God? The book of Romans is going to answer that, that question and establish the way God does that. 
Before we get to the text, let's talk about some keys to understanding the book, the context. Now, I'm going to suggest that these things are important not simply to understand the book of Romans, they're important to understand the context of the New Testament. There are seven of them. Uh, they're in, I don't guess they're in any particular order. Well, maybe they are. But these are the things that are happening in the first century, the things that have happened or are happening, and they're all connected as they set the backdrop to the things that we're reading, the letters that are written, the events that are taking place. Number one, Jesus has come and gone back to heaven. Look over with me in Luke chapter 24. Now, we probably won't get to the book of Romans proper tonight. This is the background context to the book and the New Testament, so hopefully it'll be beneficial. Luke 24, read with me from verse 44. We'll read down to verse number 49. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the third day, and that repentance, forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Does that sound familiar at all to you? So we're reading that on this side of the cross. You're going to live that on this side of the cross. It's important to appreciate that when you're reading over here, this is the context of what you're reading. These things that Jesus said, he's come and he's done his part. He has come. He has died for the sins of the world. The things written about him have been fulfilled. That's what he said. But there is more to be done. And so he says, you are going to wait in Jerusalem, and you're going to be clothed with power. When that occurs, well then, the mystery continues, God work continues. So this is point number one. Look over in Acts chapter 1 and see that in reality. Acts chapter 1, begin reading with me at verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus. This is Luke. It reads just like Luke opens, and we were just in Luke, and how Luke closes his uh, gospel account is he's opening with those events in the book of Acts. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for, wait for the promise or the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they came together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times of epics which the Father hath fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even unto the remotest parts of the earth. Verse 9 and through 11, they then watch him ascend back to glory. They had been waiting for this. In fact, the Jews had been waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. Way back in Matthew chapter 2, you remember when Herod says, where is he that should be born king of the Jews? They said, the prophets, they went and they got the scrolls and they read the prophets. We know at least the Samaritans were also waiting because in John chapter 4 and verse 25, the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, we know Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. The backdrop then of the New Testament is that he has come. He has died. He has been buried. He has risen. He has ascended. Brings us to the second thing. The Holy Spirit has come, number two, which is exactly what he said would happen. They watched as he ascended. He told them, tarry in Jerusalem until you're endued with power. We read, if we were to read the rest of Acts chapter 1, we know that they chose another apostle. And after that was done, we read, beginning in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 1, we read these words. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing among themselves, and they rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. That promise that Jesus referenced in Luke's account as well as Acts 1, it's there. The Spirit has come. The apostles begin to preach. This is exactly what Jesus said. If you were to read John 14, 15, 16, Jesus is talking to the apostles about the coming of the Spirit. These tongues that are speaking, these miraculous gifts are being given and they're going to be used to help grow the church. This is happening. By the time we get to reading the book of Romans, these things are happening. If this is 30, 33, Romans is 57, we are 20-some-odd years in the life then of Christ being gone, the Spirit being present, the church growing and maturing, these gifts, this promise being fulfilled. That's point number two. The Spirit has come. Point number three, the church has been established. That too was prophesied. Daniel chapter 2, 44, 45. In the days of these kings, God is going to establish a kingdom. L allow that to trigger in your mind then a shift from the kingdom of Judaism. There's another kingdom coming. This kingdom is going to be different. It's going to be God's kingdom. When will it be here? In the last days. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When that kingdom comes, the gospel will be proclaimed. That's what they preach. They first talk about Joel's prophecy. Over in Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, when they're accused of being drunk, they say, no, this, these men are not drunk. This is that. Well, now we've read twice about the Spirit promised, and Peter says, this is that which, which, with the, which, which the prophet spoke. And what did he say? I'll pour out my spirit. 
in the last days. Uh, and then he quotes Joel 2, 28 to 32, all the way down to verse 21. In verse 22, the gospel begins to be preached. It's noteworthy because this is the first time in its fullness in human history the gospel is being proclaimed. Christ has gone, the Spirit has come, and the gospel is being preached. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you also know, this man delivered over by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. The church then is established. The gospel begins to be preached. Jews and Gentiles eventually are now becoming Christians. There are two groups they're leaving. They're leaving Judaism. They're leaving idolatry. Gentiles in idolatry, Jews in Judaism, people are leaving from both groups coming into the church. Acts chapter 2, the Jews obey the gospel. Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, all Jewish. Acts chapter 8, half Jews, the Samaritans. We just spoke about Peter and the events in Acts chapter 9, and the reason they're necessary is no Gentile has heard the gospel yet. The Jews won't preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so God intervenes. The whole point of Acts chapter 9 is they need the Word. Without the Word, they can't be saved. The church is grown by leaps and bounds in Jerusalem. 3,000, 5,000, multitudes, they're just all in Jerusalem. It's not until Acts chapter 8 and verse number 4 that they're scattered abroad. And oftentimes when we read that, we hear those words, and they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. And it gives us a warm feeling in our hearts because at last we are going to start in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the othermost parts of the earth. Yes and no. It is happening in that they're going to preach. But look at Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 takes the events of Acts chapter 10 and verse number 4, puts them in order or sequence. And that's important. It's exceedingly important because Peter is going to rehearse the matter from the beginning in order. Significant the way he then tells us the events actually happened. Reads a little difference in Acts chapter 10. The major difference is, and the Spirit is, is coming upon them. And you read Acts chapter 10, you might think that the Spirit comes at the end because that's kind of the way it reads. And so it's not until you get to 43, 44, 45 that they hear them or see them speaking in tongues. And Peter says, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized upon whom the Spirit has come? Sounds like it's at the end. When you put it in order in Acts chapter 11, what we learn is at the beginning. Peter is the one who says it. Notice Acts chapter 11 and verse number 12. The Spirit told me, Peter speaking, to go with them without misgivings. Now, coincidentally, it's noteworthy that Peter is speaking to Jews. And he is explaining to them why he even had the nerve to go talk to Gentiles. 
Why did you do that? Who do you think you are? And so Peter has been called on the carpet, and Peter is explaining himself. Go back to verse 1. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him. Well, what's the issue? You went to speak to Gentiles. How dare you? So this is why Peter is now rehearsing the matter from the beginning. When he rehearses the matter from the beginning is where we get to verse number 13. He reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa, have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Notice 15. And as I began to speak. Well, if you were to read that in Acts chapter 10, it doesn't sound like that. Peter says the Holy Spirit didn't come at the end. No, verse 15 says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he upon us at the beginning. I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized the water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. But notice verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews only. Were they scattered abroad? Yes. But everywhere they went, they only spoke to the Jews. The Gentiles now, for the first time, a non-Jewish person has obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even with God's intervention in Acts 9, Peter was still called on the carpet and asked, what do you think you're doing? This is the context, the background, the setting of the New Testament. Jews and Gentiles now have obeyed the gospel. The church is now growing, and it's growing in such a way. The very next person we're going to run into in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12, is going to end our time with Peter mostly, and Acts chapter 13 is going to become Saul's or Paul's missionary journeys. And now it is going to go. He is the God, he is the apostle of the Gentiles, and it now will spread to the uttermost parts of the earth. Number four. What about the nation of the Jews? When you and I read Acts chapter 2 and we come to that, that great conversion of nearly 3,000, about 3,000 people, it's very exciting and thrilling. And oftentimes we read that as if the nation converted. It's important to remember that number one, only 12 men knew about Jesus and his, and his gospel, and 12 men had the Spirit speaking. That's it. The rest of those multitudes of people are Jewish, and they're there for Pentecost. They're not there for the gospel. They're there for one of the three feast days of the Jews. While there, the gospel is preached. 
these 12 men began to speak in their languages and they gather around to see how are y'all doing that. And some of them mocked and some of them said they're drunk. And then Peter and the others said, no, this is what Joel prophesied. And in that sermon, they preached Jesus. And in that sermon, they tell them, some of y'all did it. And the one that y'all killed is the Christ of the Old Testament, the one we've all been waiting for. And we are witnesses. We saw it with our own eyes, and we saw him, and they spent 40 days with him. And Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses. And they said, we saw him. You killed him. God raised him. About 3,000 people obeyed the gospel. What happened to the Jewish nation as a whole? Not one thing. Nothing has changed in Jerusalem. The temple still stands. The priests still offer. The Sabbath is still being observed. Moses is still being read. Look at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 and beginning in verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's not what I want. Well, that's what I want. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went in unto the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, Say it. Note the words, after the reading of the law and the prophets on a Sabbath. Those people are there to hear the law and the prophets read. It just so happens today, Paul is in their midst, and he's going to take that opportunity to preach to them. What I'm trying to suggest to you is, if you were a Jew in the first century Jerusalem, nothing about your life has changed at all. About 3,000 Jews obeyed the gospel, but for you as a Jew, if you didn't, you would have kept going to the synagogue, you would have kept being there on the Sabbath, and you would have kept hearing Moses and the prophets read. The problem for the Jews is it's no longer effectual. It's no longer God's way. It's still their way. But they aren't aware, seemingly, that it's no longer God's way. Look at 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Of course, you could and should read the whole chapter as it talks about it in its fullness in the entirety. But we're going to jump in at verse number 13 for time's sake. Paul says in and not like Moses, I should read 12, therefore having such hope we use great boldness in our speech, and not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not intently um, look at the end of what was fading away. Are you familiar with that scene when Moses would go into the tabernacle and he would spend time with God and then he would come out and his face would shine and glow and the people would look at his face and then slowly but surely it would fade away and then he would go back in and he would repeat this process. Are you familiar? Yes, no, maybe so. The Apostle Paul takes that language and that event and he says that represented something. That fading on Moses' face from the shine to the fading is the fading of the law. It's fading away. 
And so notice what Paul says. He says, so that they, some of Israel, he would put a veil so that they wouldn't see that. So the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it's removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So you have the nation in its fullness still operating, functionally believing themselves to be God's chosen people as they had been for the previous 1,500 years. At the exact same time, the church has, has been established. Christ has died. The Spirit has come. The gospel is being proclaimed. The doors are open, and men from all nations are entering. And you have that put aside the Jews. What happens is the Jews become hostile to the church. The early persecutions that you'll read are Jewish in nature. Rome will eventually get involved, uh, and, and they will carry out, but it's the Jews who are opposed to the church. Acts chapter 4, they will be called before the council. You remember Jesus saying to the apostles, Take no thought what you shall say. It'll be given to you in that hour. They're going to hail you between and before the council. This is Matthew 10, 16 to 20. And Jesus will say, take no thought. In Acts chapter 4 and verse number 1, they're called into question. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid hands on them, put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Verse number seven, uh, verse number five, on the next day, their rulers, elders, scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, Alexander, all who were high priestly descent. When they had placed him in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? As you know, verse 17, when the apostles uh, Peter stood up, we don't read it, but if you were to read 7 down to, to, to 17, you will hear Peter along with John. And they will say, listen, this is what God uh, did, and you killed him, and God raised him. They really don't preach another sermon for a while. And the sermon basically has three points. Uh, you killed him, God raised him, repent and be baptized. That, that's pretty much the sermon. Now, that's what they keep saying. And they keep saying, we're witnesses. We know it. We've seen it. We've seen him. We're witnesses of these things. Verse 17, notice their reaction. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them not to speak no longer any, in any man in this name. Threaten them not to preach Jesus anymore. Well, of course, you know the apostles don't stop. And so if you were to read Acts chapter 5, they keep preaching Jesus. They're arrested again. Notice verse 29. 
maybe a few verses before that, verse 27. When they brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a tree. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Acts chapter 7, Stephen will be stoned, put to death. So we go from arresting and threatening to beating, Acts chapter 5, verse 40, they're going to be beaten. Acts chapter 7, Stephen's going to be put to death. In Acts chapter 8, we're going to move to persecution. It didn't take long. Acts 2, they had favor with God and the people, and that favor gave way pretty quickly. Acts 4, they're arrested, threatened, beaten, killed, and then persecuted. Most of the Jews will not obey the gospel most of them will miss out on the kingdom of God. Their prophets, their prophecies, all that God has done, God's people, and most of them, when at last the Savior has come, they're going to find themselves on the outside of the kingdom. Our author, the Apostle Paul, is brokenhearted over this and he will say as much. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, but it's not accidental that you keep finding him in synagogues. He wants his Jewish brethren saved. He wants them to be saved. Look at Acts chapter 13. You can kind of hear his lamentation here, but you will get it in the book of Romans. Acts chapter 13, verse 44 the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. But since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. Number four, the nation of the Jews as a whole are antagonistic against the church, against the gospel, eventually against the Apostle Paul, very specifically. I'll try to only ask this one time, and I'll try to remember the rest of the 12 weeks. What time is class over? Eight o'clock? Outstanding. Number five, Judaizers are in the church. So we were just talking about the Jewish nation. Now we need to narrow that to some of the Jews coming into the kingdom. They are in the church, except they bring their doctrines and their traditions and their approach to the law of Moses into the kingdom. They don't fully embrace Jesus. They bring Moses. And now from inside of the church, they want to teach that 
and bind it on Christians. Paul says they preach a different gospel. They pervert the gospel. The persecution is from the nation, and then these people are on the inside of the church. So outside, a Jewish Christian might be confronted by Jews as leaving the nation. Inside, a Gentile Christian will be met with a Jewish Judaizing Christian telling them, you're still not quite there yet. You have to come through Moses. So the church is being persecuted from the outside and inside seeking to be corrupted by these Judaizing teachers. The Jewish Christians are suffering. The Gentile Christians are suffering. The apostle Paul is taking on all of that in trying to preach the gospel. Look at Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, this, some people call it a council, some a meeting, some, I don't, it doesn't much matter what you call it. The reason they are assembled is this issue. The corruption of the gospel, the perversion of it, these Judaizers from the inside trying to bind on Christians, Gentile Christians probably specifically, circumcision. You have to obey Moses. Now, that's being said inside the church. Read with me from verse number one. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, how serious is this? You cannot be saved. We can't get much more serious than that. Did you notice that they were called brethren? Some men came down and taught the brethren. So the brethren are already saved. But they're being told, unless you are circumcised, you can't be saved. Verse number two. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Who is in this meeting? Well, we might say it's a who's who in the first century world that's in this meeting. The elders from Jerusalem are in this meeting. The apostle Paul is in this meeting. Barnabas is in this meeting. Peter is in this meeting. James is in this meeting. And why are they all there? We're going to settle this issue. Verse number three says, therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. I kind of like that because that means while they're on their way, they're meeting their Gentile brethren and they're encouraging them that you're okay. And we're bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees grabbed the next phrase, who had believed? Who are these believers? Some of the sect of the Pharisees have believed. They've obeyed the gospel, but they didn't give up their sect. They didn't give up their Phariseeism. 
And what do the Pharisees do? Well, if we read the Lord's words in Matthew 23, they, they bind things on men they themselves won't lift. They, they don't do what they tell others. There's a host of things there in Matthew chapter 23. Hypocrites, the Lord calls them. But they're now brethren. And they are in this meeting. And they stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. From the inside of the church with the apostles present, they say it's necessary. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, can you imagine this meeting? You think any voices were raised? You think anybody got bothered, agitated just a little bit? You remember the first three or four points we made? Christ has come. He's died. He's been buried. He's risen. He's ascended. The Spirit has come. The church has been established. Jesus said the things concerning me have been fulfilled. The gospel is being preached. People are being saved. And some brethren are in here saying, no, it's necessary. It's necessary to tell them they have to be circumcised. Verse number 7 after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word, the gospel, and believe. What point, what, what is he referencing there? Cornelius, I don't think it's accidental or incidental that Peter is the one who preaches to the Gentiles first. What could you argue if Peter preaches to the Jews in Acts 2 and Peter preaches to the Gentiles in Acts 10? What can you accuse Peter of? What can you suggest? There's really no argument anybody could make, and that's Peter's point. You know it was by my mouth. I don't know that you'll find anybody more given to their nation and previous religion, all that, than Peter was. In fact, when he arrives at Cornelius' house, I find it interesting. He said, you know, it's, it's not lawful that a man that is a Jew enter into a house of a man of another nation. I mean, that's how Peter describes himself, as a Jew. And yet, God has shown me. And if it weren't for God showing him, I don't think we'd have got there. But Peter stands up very courageously and says, listen, this is what God says. God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. Number five, then, is that these Judaizers are in the church trying to harm her from the inside out, binding or seeking to bind circumcision and their traditions on the Gentile brethren. Number six, Jesus' teaching about the nation is coming to pass. When you're reading the gospel accounts of our Lord, that is happening, obviously, in his lifetime pre-the church, but what he's talking about very often is what will happen after he's gone, after the establishment of the church, after the coming of the Spirit, after the apostles go into all the world and begin to preach the gospel. He's very often talking about what's going to happen to them and the nation when that occurs. Notice Matthew chapter 10. What he had said is now being lived out. 
some of the things he says. Well, one of them is, you begin there in verse number 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father who speaks in you. That's exactly what's happening in Acts chapter 4, and it will continue to happen. Slide down later in this chapter and start reading with me at verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his own cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Who has found his life will lose it, and he who lo has lost his life for my sake will find it. You should read that in the context of that's what the Jews are going to be doing to Christians who are Jewish. That's what's going to happen. They're going to have to make decisions. Now, again, since nothing changed in the nation, how would you feel if you were a devout Jew? All of those years is your history, Moses, Abraham, all of that. And then after Pentecost, one of your children come home and say, Mom, Dad, guess what I did? I became a disciple of Jesus Christ. What would you have known all of your history up to that point? If somebody were to leave Judaism, what would that have made them? an apostate. But if you were the one who obeyed the gospel, guess what you heard and saw down there? Well, you know it's true. Those Galilean men did speak in a language that they didn't study. And you saw it, and you heard it, and you witnessed it. And maybe more germane, they gave you a gift. And now when you go back home, there's your parents, and there are you, and there's Judaism, and you're now a disciple of Jesus. How's the house going to go? Jesus said, I didn't come to give peace. This is happening when you and I are reading the epistles. What the Lord said was going to happen is now being lived out. More than that, Judaism is coming to an end. Look at Matthew 21. This will be our last passage for the night. Judaism is coming to an end. Matthew 21 and verse 33. We'll start there. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures? 
The stone which the builders rejected, the same, became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they thought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Jesus' teaching about the nation is that the nation is going to be destroyed. There's going to come a kingdom out of that which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom is going to be, be unlike any other, but the other people are going to inhabit the kingdom. In fact, it's not the last time he says it. Matthew 23 is where we'll read next week because it's 7.59, and if I start, we'll be over. <laughs> now, I know this is unfair to you because I said more than a mouthful, but do you have any thoughts, comments, questions about anything we've said so here tonight? What are we trying to do? I'm trying to frame the backdrop to Paul's writing in the book of Romans because all the things that we talked about is in this book. They're happening, and that's what's driving the things that Paul is saying and the arguments that he's making. And that backdrop is the backdrop of the New Testament. And you'll see that as Paul writes more than just one epistle concerning these issues. Our time is up. Thank you for being here tonight. Let's close with a word of prayer, and we'll let you go. Let's pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, we give you thanks and glory and honor. We, you are worthy of the very best that we have to give. You are worthy of our hearts, our entire being. Father, for your love and for your mercy, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness. But Father, for your unspeakable gift, the gift of your Son, the Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, the Christ, we, are, we, we bow our hearts and our spirits prostrate in thanksgiving. We're thankful, Father, for the Word, and we're thankful for your revelation. We're thankful for the church. Thankful, Father, for all that you do for us. Thank you for saving us in Christ. Thank you for the hope of heaven. Father, we pray your blessings upon this congregation, our elders, and everyone who meets and assembles here. Help us, Father, and strengthen us where we're weak, and bless us, Father, with understanding of your word and the conviction to live it out and apply it. We give you thanks, Father, all things, and pray that you will be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.